Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Today's podcast is brought to you by Mountain Collective. Stop spending your vacation at the same crowded ski resorts. Join the Mountain Collective this winter, and you'll get 32 days of skiing and riding at the world's best ski destinations, including Aspen, Jackson Hole, and Sun Valley. It's the perfect pass for skiers and riders with a case of wanderlust and a thirst for adventure. Mountain Collective members get two days of skiing and riding at 16 different destinations, plus all your additional days are half off. Look them up online at mountaincollective.com. Again, that's mountaincollective.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. We're rolling into the holidays here. It's almost Thanksgiving. We have a great show for you today. I'm really excited about it. Our guest, he's right down the road. He's worked at all sorts of places, Citibank, Solomon Brothers, CSFB, PIMCO, on various desks such as Fixed Income Arbitrage, Proprietary Trading Group, Head of Quant Portfolios. Most recently, he started his own firm called Longtail Alpha. He's also an author, written four books, some white papers, has a great blog. Welcome to the show, Vanir Bensali. Happy to be here. So, Vanir, let's let's rewind back. You know, I think a lot, uh, it's pretty common today for PhDs in physics to, to head into the quant finance world. But kind of when you started, that, that may not have been the most traditional career path. Give, it, give us a quick overview of how a physicist ended up on a lot of trading desks and eventually starting his own uh, his own firm. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty interesting story. It's actually quite an interesting accident. I've had a lot of, I guess, fortunate accidents. They don't seem very fortunate when they're happening, but it, they turn out to be very fortunate in the in the long run. So I've uh, kind of learned how to kind of roll with it. So this one goes back to um, 1991, 92, when I was finishing my PhD. And I was at Harvard, and I was doing my PhD in physics, and I had pretty much wanted to do nothing but be a physics professor. And I was in my third year finishing my PhD program and got an interview out of Wall Street at Goldman Sachs. And and I didn't absolutely knew nothing about finance, and I actually wanted absolutely nothing to do with finance. And I went there because you know, it was basically a free flight to go and get interviewed at, in New York. So I went there, and I met with a bunch of people on the various trading desks and various research people. And one of the most memorable one was sitting across on the trade floor from an elderly gentleman who seemed like he also had a physics degree and he was interviewing me. I could kind of read upside down what he was writing. And you know, what he was basically writing was doesn't know any finance, is very good at math, is, knows a lot about differential equations and so on and so forth. And turned out later I found out it was Fisher Black. I went back home to Boston and I told my roommate, and I met this guy by the name of Fisher Black, if you heard of him. And uh, my roommate happened to be an economics uh, PhD student. And he said, well, you know, I can't believe it, you met Fisher Black. So anyway, I, I, for, for a little while there, I was a star. But anyways, long story short, I got a couple of offers to go and work there. And obviously, I, at that time, you know, I didn't really want to do it. The following year, while I was looking for faculty positions and postdoc positions, I got another offer, and this time it was from the old that same firm, and then also from Citibank, and went down again. And they said, you know, what we would like to do, you to do is to actually be on our trade floor. And I said, wow, this is even worse than the last time. You know, first I don't know anything about finance, and second, I know nothing about trading. You know, so I just kind of, you know, made kind of sure. Like, are you sure about this? You know, what what am I signing up for? Am I if I do this? Does this mean that I'm going to be a slave? I'm going to have to work here for many, many years? They said, nope, you know, you just come here and you work as long as you want. And on top of this, we're going to give you X number of dollars, which was some very large factor multiple of what I was going to make as a postdoc. And at the end of the year, if you want to leave, uh, just leave. I said, well, that sounds like a pretty good deal. You know, can't believe these guys are so dumb because obviously I'm leaving in one year. I'll just take this money. And so I deferred my postdoc for a year. 
and I ended up at Citibank Derivatives Desk and uh, started to basically day one was told to start trading fixed income derivatives. And uh, that's basically it. I have intended to go back to physics now for the last you know, close to 30 years, feel like I'm on a long sabbatical from physics. I uh, just haven't gone back. So kind of that's the, that's the short or uh, long story of, you know, I ended up uh, in finance. There's hope for you yet. I mean, you know, as a, as a former engineer, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, I, I moved down to Los Angeles for a year just to live at the beach and thought the same exact thing. I said, I'm going to hate Los Angeles. I'm also give the chances of this company succeeding very low percentage, but like to do it for a year. Check that check that beach box for a for a guy that's a mountain guy. So you never know. All right. So you've written a lot a lot of things that you know our listeners be familiar with. Um, managed trend following funds as well as carry sort of ideas and value. But let's talk a lot about some of the main strategies that are the core of of what you guys do at Longtail. And there's a quote on your website that reads, Longtail Alpha's sole focus is to find value in the tails of financial asset returns distributions, either in the left tail as a risk mitigation hedge or multi-asset portfolios, or in the right tail to add convexity to an investor's risk exposures, or in both the right and left tails to produce alpha from convexity and volatility opportunities in a hedge fund structure. So why don't you use this as a starting point for our listeners, explaining a little more about your framework and how uh, how you think about tail strategies and, and how they work. Yeah, so I'd love to. So uh, basically, we believe that the probability distribution of returns for all asset classes and for multi-asset portfolios is really not bell-shaped or normally distributed, which is you know, generally the assumption behind a lot of theoretical finance is that distributions are normal, and a lot of finance has been built on this edifice. And we know, you know as participants in the markets, and especially as a physicist in this business, that the science of markets is very different. It's not normally distributed. Things are serially correlated. There's obviously long-term trends that you know, maybe you, you and I both know about. And you know, there's also a lot of imperfections and anomalies and so on. Now, what we have done is for the last 30 or maybe 27 years or so, I've been focused on this whole uh, wide area of option trading. And what I found after having done this for you know, almost three decades is that people confuse the central part of the distribution, meaning the center of the bell-shaped distribution, and the two extremes, and they extrapolate. They think that um, most people think, and that's not true for everybody, obviously, that once you know what the volatility is, you know a lot about what happens for extreme scenarios, extreme situations. Our approach is a little bit different. What we say is that the central part of the distribution is very different than the tails of the distribution. So this is you know, somewhat akin to the insurance, the difference between the insurance market and the reinsurance market. So if you're, for example, a, an auto insurer and you're selling a lot of auto insurance policies, on average, you know, the policy claims are very small and there's a lot of people who are insured. And you can make a pretty good statistical estimate of what your payout rates are going to be. And you can set your premiums to be you know, just a little bit higher than payout rates and essentially collect that that excess premium that you get from selling a lot of, lot of auto insurance because this is just an incredible amount of statistical data and you know a lot about that central part of the distribution. Now, you compare that to the tails of the distribution, now that's the domain of rare events. So now the reinsurance analogy is a hurricane that happens once every 100 years or maybe a, an earthquake you know, that happens very, very infrequently. It's very, very hard to predict in a very accurate mathematical way what the likelihood is. And that creates an enormous amount of uncertainty from the point of view of somebody who is underwriting that risk. So somebody who's going to sell reinsurance on this catastrophic or very large deviation event will require a very sub- substantial amount of multiple. So, so if an event, let's say, you know, in the, in the catastrophe area, if an event is likely to happen once every 100 years, most reinsurers would charge, you know, multiple of, call it four times that value or maybe 10 times, depending on, you know, how much demand and supply there is. So, but, it, but people talk in terms of multiples of the fair value of the loss. So you have a very different market for the central part of the distribution and for the tail of the distribution. So as you can imagine, the tail of the distribution is dominated by very infrequent events, very large events, and price is really set based on demand and supply and almost like a behavioral 
need for either hedging or for selling uh, insurance. On the other hand, the central part of the distribution is you know, based on a lot of data, very frequent small events, and it's not so much demand and supply, but just a way for people to offset their normal risks. So you have very different dynamics that drive these. Now, what we have done, and this is kind of what I've been specialized on and I've written a couple of books on the topic, is how do markets work when you're in the tails of the distribution and what are relatively cheap or expensive securities, whether they're options or strategies, you know, it could be trend following, could be other strategies that help you position better for those extreme events. And our approach essentially leads us to be somewhat of a contrarian when the tails are being underpriced. And in some markets where tails are overpriced, we take the other side and we will provide that reinsurance as long as we can cover it, you know, using other methods. So just to kind of summarize, you know, our strategies, we've got a hedging strategy for people who are looking for catastrophic protection on the left side. We've got another strategy that protects people from melt-ups, for example, the credit portfolios that might underperform if the equity markets keep rallying and volatility keeps falling, uh, you can kind of fortify the credit portfolio using convexity in the upside. And then a combination strategy that takes both the left and the right and combines it with this plus a few other levers to create the most cost-effective exposure to you know, either one of the extremes. And it's interesting because, you know, depending on the investor's positioning, so a long-only stock investor, you know, is most concerned with the, the left tails, bad things happening. But, you know, I think so many investors also don't really consider the right side, which is, like you mentioned, the melt-up. There's so many investors we talk to that have been scarred from the last two bear markets, and, and they have this huge risk of, you know, markets melting up. It's interesting. So before we go any further, let's kind of get into some specifics. So right now, most investors listening are probably most concerned with the left tail side, the big bad events. So thinking of like the average investor who's allocated has a global portfolio, so whether it's an endowment or somebody listening at home just for their retirement, how should someone think about implementing it? And um, you also had a, a great article in Forbes where, where you mentioned people generally feel better when they believe they have portfolios with built-in insurance protection against losses even though the expectation or average return on portfolio with or without such insurance is the same. So the question is, you know, how do you think about implementing it? Why do most people even need it? Why even bother? Right. So this is a very, very interesting question. And, you know, I'd love to answer it because I've spent a lot of time thinking about it and constantly, you know, update my own understanding and, and knowledge of it. But there's various levers you can use for better robust, more robust portfolio construction. So the first thing that you have to do is you have to understand as a you know, long-term investor or, you know, or retail investor or you know, li- likely somebody who's got you know, real money on the line who is not just doing it for speculative reasons, but really is investing you know, for the intermediate to long-term. What they're concerned about is not necessarily volatility. So the, again, the academic literature and the risk management literature has overemphasized volatility uh, as a metric for measuring risk. If you believe what I said before, the difference in the distribution uh, in the central part and the tails, uh, you're led to thinking of risk in a slightly different way. Risk for a longer-term investor means the likelihood or and the severity of a permanent loss of capital. So is there a situation that can happen where a very well-thought-out plan of investing suddenly gets thrown out the window and you basically do something in panic, you either you sell your risk assets or you do something else. So, so what you want to try to do is any risk management or downside risk mitigation paradigm, especially uh, even in, uh, in right side one, but, but let's focus on the, on the left side for a second. You want to have a methodology that keeps you in assets that serve some long-term benefit you know, for your welfare. So ultimately, if you want to keep up your purchasing power and you want to grow with the economy, you know, as the GDP grows, people will get richer and the stock market will go up. So generally speaking, you want to be invested in the stock market. The, the pullbacks or the left side events are usually harsh, but relatively short, anywhere from three months to you know a couple of years. And the name of the game is you want to be able to survive those pullbacks. And better still, you want to be able to accumulate more risky assets if the market sharply pulls back. 
So how do you do that? So 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 that's the kind of the question. Now there's four levers that I think of that are important. The first one is you need to have an asset allocation framework that is well thought out. So how much are you going to have in stocks? How much are you going to have in bonds and so on? And there's no hard and fast rule, but generally speaking, you know, anywhere between 30% and 70% equities is, you know, a, a fairly decent balance for most people. And we believe that most people should have, you know, an allocation. Anything less than 30 is probably too conservative. Anything more than 70 is too aggressive. And you want to dynamically target that kind of baseline allocation based on your own comfort level. So as markets move lower, equity markets move lower, and the value of the equity markets falls, you need to have some amount of, liqui- amount of liquidity so you can buy more, more, um, you know, more uh, equities and so on. So rebalancing is a great way to get started for moderate fluctuations, small fluctuations in the markets. Now, if markets move more, then you need other tools. You need some hard diversifiers that, in my way of thinking, I call them trending assets. So you basically have two types of assets or two types of asset classes. There's asset classes or strategies that are mean reverting. That's things like value or you know value stocks and so on. And then there are asset classes or strategies that are trending. So if markets start to break, you want these alternatives. You want things like trend following, you know, managed futures, et cetera, in your portfolio, some small amount so that you can capture the larger moves. So mean reversion is breaking down, and some of these strategies will help you mitigate the downside. Beyond that, if markets jump, which neither the rebalancing will help you or the diversifying strategies like you know strength following or CTA might help, will help you, is where you need explicit optionality. So at today's pricing level in the marketplace, market is obviously severely underpricing the probability of a sharp catastrophic loss of the downside. So yes, people are worried, but in terms of absolute volatility or absolute pricing of downside hedges, we call tail hedges, is actually at all-time lows. Now, in relative value space, you know, you can look at various structures and say, yeah, puts in the S&P are very expensive uh, because of, you know, what's called the volatility skew, et cetera. But but, those are technicalities uh, largely because in terms of absolute level of implied volatilities, which is what sets the price of options, the options on the left side are extremely cheap. And similarly, for the melt-up on the upside, they're enormously cheap because uh, there's been a lot of systematic selling of volatility, and we can get into that in a, in a few minutes if you want, but there's been a lot of selling of options in order to generate yield. So option premia across the board are incredibly inexpensive today by long-term history. And then the fourth and final lever is that at all points in time, you want to have some amount of cash or cash-like securities. You know, they could be straight T-bills, or they could be a savings account, or maybe they could be, you know, very simple things like two-year notes and the treasury two-year notes that are yielding, you know, you know, 1.6, 1.7% today that are the least default likely securities out there. So the way we think of managing por- portfolio risk for our clients and ourselves, for myself and for my own portfolio, is I think of all four of these levers active at all times. And uh, creating a mix of strategies that give you, in a sense, the best mix or the most optimal exposure. Some of it is qualitative and some of it is quantitative. But generally speaking, you want to have all four of these options or alternatives available to you to create a nice, robust left-side portfolio. Let's say someone listening says, okay, I, I've I've got a pretty good global portfolio. I've got some of these diversifiers, but I don't have any sort of tail risk ideas. What is kind of the 30,000 foot perspective. You know, what, what what would be some of the mechanics of someone that wanted to implement it? What are the tools? How do you think about the best way to, to think about the, the tail risk sort of ideas? Yeah, so that's again a, great, a fantastic way to approach this problem. So you really need to have a framework. So the way I'll describe our framework, again, this is not the only framework you can use, but it's a systematic framework. It's a little bit like you know, going to the doctor and, you know, saying, okay, I want a physical checkup and I want to make sure that I live, you know, a long, healthy life. You know, what are the things I can do today that will ensure that, you know, I have, I have a healthy, you know, fun life and I get to do the things that I want to do. So so that's it's similar to this. So here, like I said before, 
if you want to gain in your portfolio, if you want capital appreciation, you need to be exposed to some sort of risky assets, whether they're equities or corporate bonds or something like that, that grows with the underlying uh, economy. So, so the first thing that we do is we try to get a asset allocation. So if you're an investor and you say, you know, I want to figure out what's the best way to hey, the first question I'll ask you, okay, in my framework is, okay, what is your overall asset allocation? And the only reason I ask that question is because what I want to figure out is what is your exposure to the two core factors that matter for long-term investing. The first core factor is equity risk or equity beta. And the second core factor is inflation risk or what I call bond beta. So so let's say you have a very typical portfolio, which most people have. Let's say you have 60% in equity, the 40% in bond, the 60-40 portfolio. Your equity beta in this case might be 0.6 or 60. For every percent move in equities, your equity portfolio will move by 0.6. And then your bond beta will come from the 0.4. But now you have to be a little bit more careful because that bond portfolio, if it is sitting in high-yield bonds, also contributes significantly to your equity beta because high-yield bonds are issuances of companies so that they have equity beta or equity exposure as well. So the first thing that we do is we kind of do a diagnostic. So this is like, again, taking the doctor's analogy. You go to the hospital, you get an X-ray or an MRI. You say, okay, well, you think you have you know XYZ condition, but here's your real condition. Your real condition is that you've got 0.8 equity beta or 0.9 equity beta. And you've got some of these other assets. You know, Maybe you've got some... In a real estate, vacation property that might get distressed in a deleveraging environment, et cetera. So the first thing that we'll do is come up with a good estimate of the equity risk. So let's say in this uh, example for your investor, you know, that turns out to be an equity rate of 0.6. The second step we'll ask is, okay, what is, and by the way, all of this, any investor can do for themselves. So I'll come to the tool in, in just about 30 seconds here on what you can do. So the second question is, okay, what is your risk threshold or tolerance? Not just volatility, but where would you cry uncle and say, you know, I got to get out and this is just too much risk and I don't want to lose any more money. So that I call the attachment point or what is called in the reinsurance language attachment point. So how far away is your pain threshold? So some people say, I don't want to lose more than 10%. Some people say, I don't want to lose more than 15 Some people say, no more than 25 so let's, for now, let's go with example of, let's say, 20%. So if the portfolio falls more than 20%, then after that, you're completely protected. And let's say you want to protect this portfolio over the next one year. So your horizon is one year. Now, what you can do is, given these three core inputs, you can basically go to market, go look at, you know, and option and assume here for simplicity that your underlying beta was to the S&P 500, you can go and price up an S&P 500 option, index option with a strike that is 20% at the overall portfolio level or adjusted for this 0.6 exposure because your beta is only 0.6. So, so you, you basically want to buy that exposure on 0.6 of your portfolio and you can go and find that option price from the market. And let's say, you know, for argument's sake, it turns out to be 1%. So if you now spend 1% of annual premium per year, you can be guaranteed that the portfolio will not lose any more than that attachment point once you have bought that option. So that insurance is widely available, and most investors are able, if they chose to, to go out and buy that insurance. And it's very hard to do because insurance or purchasing protection against the portfolio is very hard to do because it costs real money, but it's doable. Now, you can be more sophisticated. And a lot of the institutional clients that we have, they give us some degrees of freedom. We call them basis risk that allow us to do much better than that 1% market premium. So we can actually do the same thing for, you know, obviously um, in a much cheaper way. And, uh, for a better convexity or better out, outcome profile. But in a nutshell, I mean, that's the approach. And, you know, it's very easy. Uh, that protection is available. And, and today, you know, just kind of concluding this particular thought, because option volatility is very low, it is very easy and very cheap to buy that protection, uh, especially given the fact that the markets, equity markets, have had such an incredible run-up. Uh, you know, just this year, they're up approximately 15%. So, 
to spend one or one and a half percent to protect a good chunk of that portfolio from a severe downdraft doesn't seem that expensive, but it is very hard to do. It's very hard to do because investors typically do not like to part with premium that'll decay to zero. It's a little bit like buying you know, fire insurance on your house. You buy it, but you don't complain if your house doesn't burn down. In the case of financial insurance or financial reinsurance, when people buy insurance against their portfolio, they don't like it when that premium goes to zero. But the end effect is the same. Having that hedging in place allows you to actually hold on to your portfolio for further gains on the upside. I wonder why mentally, and and I kind of sympathize with this, I wonder why mentally people compartmentalize and bucket portfolios sort of insurance in this sort of framework different than they would life insurance, car insurance, house insurance, because everyone owns those, right? Like it's not even a question on all those sort of investments, but with portfolios, I mean, almost no one does as far as I know. Do you have any thoughts or insights on why, why from a behavioral perspective, someone who's been doing it, any, any thoughts on why that might be? Yeah, so I've written a paper on this and this is called Behavioral Perspectives and Tail Risk Hedging. And I'm actually presenting one of these in January at, at our local Chapman University, there's a conference on, on, on this uh, exact topic and it's fascinating and you know it's actually in the behavioral literature it's quite well understood you know why these kind of events happen so for example one example people use is so if you are given a bunch of positive a lot of gifts you like to get little a lot of small gifts you don't like to get one big package with all gifts you like to get them in little small pieces but when people have losses they like to aggregate all their losses together. And, and that's the, it's, a, it's an aggregation-disaggregation problem here. So what people, when people look at insurance on their portfolio, the right thing to do would be to actually take the insurance and then combine it with you know, how the rest of the portfolio has done and say, well, this whole package has done X. But what becomes salient is the losses on the insurance. And that's what people fixate on. And you know, again, it's not in the common vernacular financial, you know, I guess, asset allocation today to actually aggregate losses and gains or other insurance and the underlying portfolio together. But it's coming that way. And I, I believe, to me, it's very similar to having, you know, stocks and bonds in your portfolio. Now, uh, you can think, for example, when you have 60% in equities and, you know, some, let's say 40% in bonds, why do you have the 40% in bonds? You have 40% in bonds because even though bonds yield less than stocks, both in terms of dividend yield and in terms of total return over time. The reason you buy bonds is because they give you protection from their diversification. So it took about you know, 50 years or so in you know, classic Markowitz diversification papers and so on that it became natural for people to say, hey, look, buying a bunch of diversified assets when the correlation is negative or zero makes sense because it reduces overall risk and allows you now to hold that portfolio for longer and garner the gains. And, you know, that classic Markowitz mean variance portfolio theory is still in practice and people still use bonds, even though bonds have a negative relative return compared to equities. That same logic has not yet found its way into the common asset allocation vernacular. Because you can think of buying protection using cheap put options, and I don't say, you know, buy options at any price, but when optionality is cheap and you can buy cheap insurance on the downside, it's not very different than allocating some of your money to, to fixed income. I think the major, the major hurdle is that there's a very finite time decay element. When you pay premium for an option, at some finite point in time, that premium, even though it's very small, it goes to zero. And people don't like their assets to go to zero. But that's the thing, that's a behavioral bias. It's, it, the fundamentally, in, you know, in terms of finance theory, there's no way to really justify not buying insurance if it allows you to garner gains at the overall portfolio level and reduce risk. Sounds like it's just a marketing problem. When any listeners, you get any good responses, let us know. So, uh, Veneer, a couple questions that, that spawned from your comments. One, I'd like you to comment on the current environment. So, why is volatility so low? It's hitting record lows, not just in equities, but in a lot of asset class sort of volatility measures. And two, is kind of is there a sweet spot kind of on the option scale 
that you think for most investors is is more beneficial? So is it kind of using at the money, 10%, 20%, any sort of thoughts there? So first is, why does the environment look like it does? And then two, any particular kind of takeaways on, on where practical implementation of the shorter strategy might be? Yeah, no, that, that's great. So, so the, the second one is an easier question to answer, so I'll take that one first. Uh, and the, the first one is, is yeah, a little bit longer, and I have my opinion and my view on it, and I'll try to justify it. So where should you buy an option, the strike or the attachment? It's really a, a function of your own underlying risk-reward trade-off or utility function or pain threshold, so to speak. Now, the at-the-money implied volatility is very, very low. So the VIX is obviously, you know, by many metrics, it's just bounced a little bit in the last few days, but it's, uh, you know, 30-year lows. If you look at interest rate volatility, it's also, you know, 30-plus-year lows and so on. So volatility across the board is very low. So at-the-money volatility is low, but out-of-the-money volatility, meaning deeply out-of-the-money puts, create at a much higher implied volatility. And that's just a function of the fact that the people who are selling them don't want to sell those options you know, at the same volatility as at the money, because if the markets fall, usually volatility rises. So from a protection versus price point of view, it really is a function of, you know, where do you want your protection to be? If you're closer to add the money, volatility is low, but the option costs more because more likelihood that it's going to end up in the money. If you are further out of the money, there's a lower likelihood, but at the same time, it is you know, more expensive in pure op volatility terms. But again, cheaper in terms of the total premium you spend. So the trade-off that you make here, or what you want to make, is you know how do you actually create a downside heading portfolio such that you're not paying an excessive amount of premium for buying out-of-money options, but at the same time getting the benefit of the cheap volatility. And you know one of the simplest structures you can do in the market today is what's called a put spread. So you buy a put that's closer to at the money, maybe five percent out and sell another put that's maybe 10 or 15% out. So that put spread is buying a cheaper option in terms of volatility and selling a more expensive option and giving you protection between that 5% strike and 15% strike if you so choose. So that's you know, just an example of what you can do and you can move it around you know, as the markets change. And the option markets, to be very sure, are very dynamic and volatility changes a lot. So you know, if you're going to do this you know, on a more dynamic basis, you have to be on top of it, but generally speaking, a simple structure like that, you know, would give people a lot of comfort and doesn't pay an egregious amount of uh, amount of premium. So, you know, that's you know, that's one thing for people to look at. Going to your first question, so why has the volatility or the VIX or many other metrics, like uh, you know, the in fixed income people look at the move index, and you know, there's basically every index. You know, gold has a volatility index, and then Nikkei has one and oil has one. You know, essentially every index, and I look at about 30 or 35 of them, is trading at multi-decadal lows and certainly in many cases below the 2007-2008 crisis. And it's happened in my own career. I've been doing this, like I said, for about 30 years. And I try to take a very scientific approach to, you know, this stuff. It, to me, it all repeats every 10 years or so. And it is driven fundamentally by a need for yield. So the ultimate reason, and it's kind of stunning, and I've written a few pieces both on Forbes and our website if anybody's interested, but, but the ultimate reason is that there are still regions in countries of the world, take for example Germany, where yields at the two-year point and five-year point are negative, right? So you're giving money to the government in order to get less money back. Now that makes a lot of sense when you're afraid, for example, in the aftermath of 08 or 09, and you want your money back, so you're willing to lend it to somebody who's at least going to give it back to you at a, you know, maybe at a lower interest rate or maybe, you know, with some haircut. But in today's environment where equity markets are at all-time highs, uh, et cetera, yeah, there's really no fundamental reason why a government should be confiscating your money. But that's the state of affairs, and those rates are very, very low. And the corollary of very low interest rate yields is that people have been forced out of the traditional markets where they get yield into other markets to get yield. Now, it's almost like a sequence of things that have happened. So you go from not being able to get enough yield in the bond markets to maybe not getting enough yield in various asset backs and then high yield and so on. And then the, the last rung of the ladder, and it usually repeats in each one of these cycles you know, I've observed over the last you know, 30 years or so, is 
that people start getting into synthetic ways of generating yields. So in the 0607 event, you had a lot of structured products, a lot of synthetic CDOs and so on, where you packaged various underlying securities uh, you know, that were exposed to the housing market, for example, to get synthetic structures that would give you yield. Now, in today's environment, that analogy, and this is uh, in, in, the, in the paper that I you know, recently published on what I call shadow insurance or volatility selling, short volatility strategies. I, I call it shadow insurance because what people are doing, and people, when I say people, I mean a very generic term for everywhere from large institutional investors, endowments, sovereign wealth funds, pensions, trend followers, risk parity managers, risk premium harvesters, and you know, even the, uh, many of the inverse volatility ETFs. Everybody's gotten into the, the business of selling options, of selling insurance, because when you sell an option and the market does not move, you get to keep pay the pre- you get to keep the premium. And that premium, if you add on to your already existing asset base, that looks like additional yield, and everybody's looking for additional yield. So the main reason, again, is very low yield in the marketplace coming from the central bank's keeping a lot of liquidity, so there's very few sources to get yield, and then the market taking a clue or a hint and saying, well, this is license to sell volatility, and volatility selling really is the reason why implied volatility levels have gotten to all you know, very, very low levels uh, that we've seen in the, in the last uh, year or so. So there's, there's a lot in there, and then thinking about volatility, I mean, I remember back on the blog, pre-crisis, we were writing about a lot of the volatility writing funds, and, and a lot of them exist in the CTA space, a lot of famous names. That, And looking back on that post, it's funny because I don't think any of them exist anymore because you, you plug along a lot of these firms that just kind of unconsciously sell vol, sell vol, sell vol, gives you a nice sharp ratio of two. You make a percent a month or whatever it is more for levered, and then it eventually has a down 30 a month, etc. One of the things in... in I wanted to kind of talk about as we kind of shift around from buying vol to selling vol. And how do you think about price is, is kind of always the determinant. Like there's a, there's a price at which it makes sense to buy a stock. There's a price which it makes sense to, to not own the stock or to even short it for a company like Apple. But also for options, you know, thinking about it right now, it seems like we probably both agree that volatility is pretty low and many option sort of ideas are probably underpriced. But how do you think about the pricing of options too? Is is it, you know, a time when you think it's totally reasonable to be selling options or implementing that sort of strategy? Like, how, how does the how does that balance work in your head? Yeah, so I think of option selling a little bit like like I always use the term shadow insurance or insurance selling. So when you're a seller of insurance, you know, you want to think like an insurance company. How does an insurance company think? They say, okay, if I sell insurance in different asset classes. And by the way, that's what a lot of people are doing. What is my aggregate maximum loss that I can suffer in a catastrophic event where everything gets correlated? So, uh, you know, new global financial crisis happens, everything gets unwound. How much can I lose maximally on all those insurance policies? So the metric is a little bit different than a traditional portfolio. In a traditional portfolio, most investors look at, for example, a sharp ratio, right? They'll say, okay, my sharp ratio a sharp ratio is essentially the return that that strategy delivers over the risk-free rate. Uh, could be any risk-free rate you want, for example, you know, the T-bill rate, divided by the volatility. So that's the sharp ratio, return over risk ratio. When you're an option seller, your metric is slightly different, but similar. It's basically, okay, what is my max income or max yield gain per unit on the denominator now, per unit of catastrophic downside risk. So, so everything go, gets uncorrelated or correlated and everything moves up against me at the same time. What is my maximum loss? And that's the first stage of kind of that calculus is to say, okay, what I need to do is I need to diversify the insurance selling or the shadow insurance across many different lines of business. And that's essentially what people have done. Many large deep-pocketed investors are selling interest rate volatility. They're selling equity volatility, currency volatility, and that's why volatility is across board have come down so much. Now, at this point in time, you have to now look at, okay, what can happen if we are running a very large short volatility portfolio if the market fluctuates? The problem with volatility, very different to a traditional asset, is 
that the way you sell volatility is through an option. And when you sell, an, whether it's explicit or implicitly, now when you sell an option, it has, by definition, by construction, a very nonlinear response to underlying market moves. So using a sharp ratio type technique where the denominator is, you know, more well-behaved, the volatility is more well-behaved, is very dangerous because in this case, the maximum loss is extremely nonlinear. And, and technically, I'll use one buzzword here, but in an option trader's vernacular, it's called the gamma, the negative gamma. So if you think of now the dynamic, and again, this is in the paper, when volatility is very high in the marketplace, the gamma turns out to be low, meaning for any small fluctuations, you don't have the risk of a large change in the risk profile of your portfolio. As volatility goes lower and lower, the gamma actually increases. And as volatility gets lower and lower, more and more people come into the volatility selling business because it's attractive first. And then secondly, you have to sell more in order to get the same deal because prices and options go down as volatility goes down. So what this has is a very significant multiplicative effect on the amount of total risk or total negative gamma in the, in the portfolio. And again, in the paper, I show some calculations. But the bottom line is that the market gets very, very exposed to noise and small fluctuations. And you know, over the last four cycles that I've observed this, the story always starts the same way. Is that at some point, the um, posture of the market participants becomes so exposed to small fluctuations that any small fluctuation that is unexpected can create a very significant cascade. And again, just to be very, very clear, sharp ratio is not a good metric for volatility selling strategies. And uh, you know, just to echo what maybe you said a couple of minutes ago, today a great poster child of this would be one of the inverse volatility ETFs like SVXY or XIV that trades in the market. If you look at the sharp ratio, the cosmetic sharp ratio of one of these securities, it looks like a sharp ratio of four and a half. This is a volatility selling structure, right? So four and a half sharp ratio is almost eight or nine times the sharp ratio of the stock market. Stock market sharp ratio over the long run is about 0.7 or 0.8. So if you mechanically take the security, this ETF, at today's pricing level and put sharp ratio in, let's say, Markowitz optimizer or something like that, optimizer is going to say, well, put an enormous amount of your allocation to this inverse volatility ETF because it's got such an incredible sharp ratio. But it's very misleading because the right return to risk metric is not the sharp ratio, but it is how much return are you getting for a catastrophic potential loss on the downside. So again, to conclude on this particular thought, I believe that maybe the short volatility type of strategy has a little bit more to run, but you are either in or very close to a very significant danger zone already. Interesting. You know, Veneer, we don't, we just, we don't have a market environment where there's ever going to be volatility again. We're, we're getting ready to print, although it's pretty close after today. I think November would be the 13th up month in a row in the stock market, which has only happened once before ever in the 1950s and it never a calendar year. So I'm actually cheering that we do the full calendar year, 12 <laughs> months up in a row, just, just to confound everyone that a year ago was like, you know, running for the hills. Let's take a moment to hear from our sponsor. Longtime podcast listeners know how much I love skiing. Last year, when I saw the offer for the Mountain Collective Pass, I bought one immediately. In fact, it's the first podcast sponsor I asked Jeff to reach out to personally. If you're a skier boarder, it's the best deal around period. The Mountain Collective Pass gives you 32 days of skiing and boarding at the best ski destinations all over the world. We're talking Aspen, Jackson Hole, Mammoth, Snowbird, Taos, Banff, Revelstoke, Chamonix, Niseko, and far more. In total, your Mountain Collective Pass gives you access to skiing and boarding on four continents, 52,000 skiable acres, enjoying 6,800 inches of annual snowfall with 481 chairlifts. Best of all, there's no blackout days. And on top of that, the pass gives you half off additional days you decide to ski or board. I personally could not be more excited for this pass. Look them up online at mountaincollective.com and come meet me on the slopes. Again, that's mountaincollective.com. And now, back to the show. 
All right, let's switch gears a little bit because this podcast is going for three hours because I have so many more questions, but uh, we may have to get you back on. By, by the way, is that speech open doors in January or is that, closed, is that a private event? I think it should be open doors at, uh, I think, at the, the Chapman University. I think the organizers cool. would be very happy to have uh, participants well, show up to that. Uh, contact them and see. Yeah. Yeah. We'll post uh, links to not only all the papers and books and websites, but also to that speech if uh, if we can get a link afterwards. So I wanted to talk a little bit about a piece you wrote involving bonds. And the punchline of the post uh, is, and here's a quote, says, investing is always a matter of price. At today's prices, bonds are neither insurance nor an investment. At best, they are hedges, but not by owning them, by selling them. So with that takeaway in mind, walk us through the thought process uh, you had in, in writing this. Yeah, so that this one is somewhat controversial, and I knew it was going to get some people quite engaged, which it did. And and it is, you know, the, the idea here is that trying to maybe it's a, you know a little bit uh, you know more aggressive of a thought than than it uh, truly is. But I just wanted people to think about this very strong assumptions and everybody's portfolio diversification uh, strategies. There's an assumption that you buy stocks, you buy bonds, and bonds become diversifiers against stocks, like we said before. Now, what has happened over the last almost decade is that people have gotten an enormous freebie. So what has happened is yields have fallen as the central banks have come in and pushed liquidity into the marketplace. That has collapsed interest rates globally. We just talked about negative interest rates. And um, you know, for anybody who knows how discounting works in fixed income or, or, you know, basically any asset class. The discounting is an exponential function of interest rates. So as, as interest rates fall by a little amount, the discount factor uh, rises. And what, it, what that does, it actually raises the present value, the NPV of future assets. And yes, truly for fixed income, as yields fall, that, you know, obviously goes very high. And when yields go negative, bonds trade above par value, which is another way of saying, you know, you're paying more money than you're going to get in the future. So, so as discount factors fall aggressively, bond prices clearly go up. And then as discount factors fall, asset prices across the board also go up because the discount factor is fundamental to all assets. So whether it's equities, equities are discounted by the future dividend, expected dividends by the discount factor and so on and so forth. So, so what you've seen is this miraculous but wonderful freebie where stocks and bonds are supposed to be diversifying in terms of you know, day-to-day return volatility, and and truly they are, and they have been in the short run, but all asset prices on a cumulative basis have gone up. So the correlation, the cumulative correlations between stocks and bonds and, you know, a lot of other assets is very, very positive because all assets have gotten bid up. Now, that brings us to, you know, this one-page blog that I wrote a few days ago that you just mentioned. So there's two ways of thinking about using bonds in a equity or diversifying portfolio. The first one is, okay, you say, look, I've got equities, let's buy some bonds, and that diversify based on this long-term historical correlation that people have believed. Uh, by the way, the correlation between stocks and bonds, as we know, uh, you know, has been somewhat negative since 1987, but prior to that, period of high inflation, that correlation was actually fairly positive, meaning stocks and bonds rose and fell together. So if you believe that bonds have a finite lower level of yields. So yes, negative yields, we thought never would never happen, but they happen in Europe. But now you're at a point where you're trading at you know, extremely low yields across the board, across the globe. You know, if you look at for many European countries, they're trading lower than you know, US treasuries and, uh, and so on and so forth. The amount of diversification benefit that the bond market could provide you against stocks goes down because you're close to that zero bound in yields. There's really not much price appreciation you can get once you're at zero or below, you know, somewhat below zero. So, so that's the second part of it. They, they are not a good diversifying or good insurance asset. Now, you also say, well, talk about the first one. What about as an investment? So investment in absolute terms is something that gives you more return on your money if held over time and really, you know, more real return over, on your money. So if, you're, if you believe that, and we got the inflation numbers out today, right around 2% or so inflation, you know, how can one look at a treasury bond or a five-year, tre- you know, or, or, you know, even a, you know, shorter dated instrument that's giving you, you know, between one and a half and 2% yield and say that you're getting any investment return on your money? You're really getting very real, real 
investment return on your money. Your purchasing power is not keeping up with the rate of inflation. So, so the first idea is that buying bonds doesn't provide you with much diversification because there's truly not much price appreciation you're going to get. Secondly, when inflation is running at two or uh, you know higher than two percent, and the central banks are really trying very hard to raise inflation, then it's very hard to justify having bonds as an investment in your portfolio because they don't give you real return. And that brings us to the conclusion: so why are they hedge? Why are they? How can they be used as a hedge? Well, they can be used as a hedge somewhat by actually betting that as inflation rises and as interest rates rise the bond market falls, and if the bond market falls and drags down in a reversal of what we've seen in the last 10 years, all the other asset classes, you get to protect your overall portfolio value. And by doing so, you're not selling a lot of your equities that might have embedded capital gains on it. So that's kind of the theme of the idea. And uh, again, you know, as I mentioned, you know, this got uh, some people thinking, and obviously there's you know, many schools of thought in the short run. Bonds will re- reflexively act like they, you know, they're flight to quality instruments. But over the long run, if you hold bonds long enough, you're neither getting return, and I, d- I don't believe you're getting much in terms of insurance benefit either. Did you get some good angry heckler email responses to that? No, nobody was very angry. I think the, 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 the all the responses were quite intelligent. And one of the exceptions to my statement, uh, which is very valid, is that once you look at liabilities, and most people, most you know, most retail investors only have assets that they look at, but uh, many of the larger institutional investors also have liabilities, and and there clearly, you know, bonds uh, have a different role. They are they are there to match their liabilities, uh, and so there is some role for bonds as you know long-term liability hedges. So yeah, so so you know, my paper, uh, I got a lot of very intelligent comments on it, and. Uh, uh, you know, really the point was to kind of open, open people's minds to the fact that if correlation signs were to switch and inflation were to come back and stocks and bonds start to move back in together, uh, you know, bonds would be better as short hedges, not as, you know, as long as hedges or instruments. And I think that puts it in the same category, though, as, as tail risk is where if you're if you were to actually short bonds, you know, you, you exist in that negative carry world, which is... Correct. You know, so many people hate on so many levels, not to mention, I mean, thinking about Japan, I mean, how many macro managers have we seen in the last 20 years? That's the famous Widowmaker trade, right? Exactly. Trying to trying to short Japanese bonds and just for, they just don't seem to go anywhere. Yeah, and I say that, you know, I said it, that's a very, very good point, Matt, because I say that in my paper, Japanification, right? So if there is a very small but finite probability. And this is completely rational, right? The reason people buy bonds at low yield and even negative yields is because there is a finite probability. And this is a classic hallmark of rational bubbles, is there has to be a finite probability of a very rare event, which is, you know, in this case, something like a Japan outcome that will uh, induce some people to buy even at low yields. So that's absolutely a possibility, and that can absolutely happen. And if that happens, I, you know, my thesis will be absolutely wrong. But I, I believe the likelihood of that happening is you know, much lower than the market is pricing today. So as a, we probably got to ask a few more questions, start winding you down. As a former slash current physicist who probably, you know, is, is having worked on a lot of the top desks on Wall Street, what are your thoughts these days about, you know, quantitative investing and the impact of, say, big data and artificial intelligence? Um, is that something you spend any time thinking about or researching or have any impact on what you're doing? Yeah, it does. It's quite a bit. I mean, so to me, it's, it's technology. You know, we've generated by many you know, anecdotal uh, writings, uh, you know, in the last two or three years, the world has generated, you know, more data than it has generated over the last few hundred years. So, and the rate of data gathering is just going to obviously increase. And uh, I wrote a paper on this topic on, you know, and the paper is called, you know, when it was given at the Journal of Investment Management Conference, how to beat the machines before they beat you. And, you know, one of the concluding thoughts there was that, yes, there are certain things we can do. For example, uh, not engage in the things that machines or artificial intelligence or big data-based systems are inherently better at, which is short-term tactical trading and market making and so on. But there are certain things that we can do as humans who can think outside the box, we're not required to think just in terms of raw data and data processing and just in terms of very rapid, you know, linear regressions or whatever that, you know, underlying model might be. And again, machine learning and artificial intelligence is 
kind of like the you know the the most talked about thing in the marketplace today. But there are certain things where there is not enough data, where humans are still extremely good at not only making hypotheses but also predicting and then executing. So places which I call places where machines don't yet go because they don't have enough data. So so we spend a lot of time thinking about that intersection because I do believe in my domain, the tails, almost by natural selection, I've selected an area where any marginal increase of quantitative or data processing analysis can have a very significant impact. But even if it doesn't, there's still a way for a priori thinking or you know for systematic human thinking to make a contribution because there's not enough data for a statistical system to actually you know make very good probabilistic judgments so we spend a lot of time thinking about it and we believe that you know machine learning and ai and, and data science is here to stay you know it's just a natural evolution of technology you know it's not unlike automobiles you know at the turn of the last century horses were the things that people use and people say look who's going to go and get this noisy smoke spouting object called the automobile, you know, when horses are so much easier to use and, and so on and so forth. And obviously, the technology, you know, improves exponentially and then automotives became not only cheaper, but faster and cleaner and all that. And now you got, you know, the electric cars. So the horses have been relegated to, you know, the wilderness and uh, to hobbyists. I, I do think over the next 50 to 100 years, you know, traditional macro investing the traditional investing paradigms are probably going to go the way of the horse, very specific domains where people would use them. Uh, most of the day-to-day market making and trading will be machine-driven. But there are pockets where I think uh, machines still have or AI still has a, has a long way to go because there's just not enough data. Yeah, you know, it's, I love thinking about these things. I was actually tweeting this morning over coffee. I said, I, I wonder what everyone, if you had to go back 20 years, would think would be the most surprising market development over the last 20 years. And it's pretty funny to see the responses because I said mine was negative sovereign yields. I said, if you were to tell people that you would have negative government bond yields, people would say you're crazy. And of course, uh, like half my responses were people talking about some form of central banks and going crazy about that. And there were some very emotional cryptocurrency investors that were upset that I didn't say Bitcoin. But, uh, you know, I I spent a lot of time thinking about that. You know, in the next 10, 20 years, what are going to be the big surprises? I don't have any good answers, but I think um, it'll be fun to watch, certainly in that AI machine learning world. I'm going to ask one or two more questions. We're going to have to go. And and by the way, going on to that last quote, I'm going to have to add this to the article, Jeff. Veneer has a great graphic from one of his papers, and it's a Time Magazine ad from 1969 that and I'll read the, the headline. It says the quote fat time of day. You're really hungry and ready to eat two of everything. Here's how sugar can help. And this is an article from Sugar Information that that is trying to convince people to lose weight. And the way to do it is you eat a couple tablespoons of sugar because it only has 18 calories. It's just funny how information changes. That's not a question. I just I just love this. We'll add it to the show notes. But there, I'm sure there's a lot of those that we probably look back and kind of embarrassed about. Okay, two more questions and then we'll wind down. Great post recently on spot up, vol up. You know, I think a lot of people assume that, that the vol kind of only goes up when markets puke. And you had a, you know, kind of challenge a traditional view this inverse view between market direction and volatility and talking about Japan. You want to make a quick comment on that, on what, what you're writing about? Yeah, no, that, that's another interesting dynamic. So what happens is, you know, and I'm glad you brought the, the, the sugar example, is that a lot of times investors start to believe what's told to them, repeated to them enough times. And in this case, it was like, you know, sugar is good for you to lose fat. But And that kind of view stuck with people for a very long period of time. And I think it took many, many years before people realized that was exactly the opposite of what reality was. Well, who knows? I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe you know, maybe that is the truth, but who knows? But but the point is that that enough things that get repeated enough times and got thought enough times, it becomes conditioned and institutionalized and so on. And to, in the volatility markets, one of the similar things that have happened since 1987 is this assumption that when markets go down, volatility rises. When markets go up, equity markets go up, volatility falls. And and that's the the it started since '87 because generally in the sell-off, illiquidity increases and people find that they cannot hedge. So there's an extra premium that you have to pay for the downside. So that's the traditional way of looking at it: spot down, 
wall up, spot up, wall down. Now, what happens in a market that is totally offsides, meaning there is a lot of bad positions both on the upside and the downside, is that can get totally flipped. And happened in China about two years ago when there was a lot of excess buying of call options and there was a speculative mania on upside. And recently, over three or four days ago, it happened in the, in the Nikkei market, the Japanese stock market, where exactly the opposite of this uh, traditional directionally, directional move happened. So the, markets, the Nikkei market rallied about maybe 1.5% or 2% overnight, and the VNKY, which is the analog to the VIX in the, in the Nikkei equity options market, actually rose almost six or seven points. So what happened was something broke. And the reason something broke, in my view, is comes back to something that we spoke of a few minutes ago about selling off options in order to generate yields. So there is a lot of systematic structural selling. Institutional investors and retail investors have been convinced that selling options is a consistent way of making money. So you sell a put option and you sell a call option. At inception, you don't see any exposure because the delta of the put option and the, and the, and the call option, meaning the, the sensitivity cancels out. But the, the call options that you sell are at a much lower price. You have to sell more of them. So what I believe has happened is that there is a very severe imbalance in the marketplace where there are a lot of not so well-managed or well-hedged positions on the upside. And the point of my paper was that if you come in one day and you have an unanticipated shock on the upside, like what happened in the Nikkei. You know, you know the U.S. could be a, a kind of a bigger example of it, where you come in and suddenly maybe there's a tax deal or maybe there's a tweet or something that you know convinces people that the market should be up. You come in and the market is up a few percent. You could easily be in a situation where there's a mad scramble to buy those options that have been sold on the upside back. So you could be in a situation where the equity markets are up and volatility is up. And that could create very significant disarray because the spot up, vol down, and spot down, vol up is so deeply embedded inside of so many different systems, risk parity, dynamic risk balancing, volatility targeting, uh, et cetera, et cetera, that it could cause a lot of disarray in the markets. And, uh, and I, I just wrote a finished paper with Larry Harris from USC that's actually on the SSRN today on, on this topic of what can create this shadow insurance market to unwind. And then again, it's not a high probability scenario, but it happens. It, it would be because of one of these uh, types of correlations breaking down, not unlike the stock bond correlation, you know, things that are assumed but are not really severely tested uh, in, in lots of models. Yeah, let's have a good melt-up. I love a good bubble. There's, yeah. <laughs> there's, not, there's not enough good bubbles these days, only only in some places. I, I miss the late 90s was a lot of fun until it wasn't. But <laughs> Veneer, one more question. We ask this everyone. If you look back in your career, what do you think has been the most memorable, it can be good, it can be bad, most memorable trade or investment? that you can think of? Oh, boy, there's been so many bad ones. I, I mean, I, I think I'm one of those who, uh, you know, I remember, I don't, I think I remember very few of the really good ones. I remember all the bad ones where I, you know, kicked myself. I think it's, uh, I, I think I think one of the best ones, and, you know, fortunately, I didn't make the same mistake twice, was that the, 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 the internet bubble, I fought it, I fought it, I fought it. So it's not a trade, but rather an investment policy or philosophy and I kept overthinking it, and I kept over you know, thinking about my you know, own economic and rational reasoning and you know, talking about why the market shouldn't be going up. And I fought it. Uh, you know, I didn't lose any money on it, but I didn't make any money on that bubble either. And I kind of promised myself you know, the next time an asset bubble happens, yes, I'll challenge it and you know, be cute about it and question it and so on, but I will ride it. And fortunately, in the last few times that it's happened, I've been able to do so because you know, the markets can behave irrationally for a very long period of time. And part of being an investor is, you know, not to overthink it and try to, you know, overlay your own. You know, I, I wonder if that that experience yeah. kind of so we didn't even get into it today, but Veneer has written a lot of great papers on trend following and managed trend following funds still does. I wonder if that experience kind of sowed the seeds of trend following for you. Was that kind of the, the beginning was was that a influential event? Do you think, or was uh... yeah? You know, I, I what I found is that it's a, it's a very different thing 
it's, uh, you know, intelligence supplied in the markets to a certain degree is good, but beyond it, you know, it's actually very counterproductive. And a lot of people have written about it. I'm not the first one, but but it's very easy to ride the trend. And, you know, there, I guess, you know, one thing I'll say is, and I've written a paper again on this topic, but, you know, after having done this for 30 years, you know, there are kind of two uh, very simple um, factors that I have found to have just a very good long-term structural predictive power in terms of your own performance, you know, for your portfolio. And any investor can do this. This doesn't have to be an institutional investor or you don't need to use fancy derivatives. You know, and, and I think the paper you're referring to is, is the one where, I, you know, it's called Trend and Carry uh, in, in a lot of places. And, and the idea is very simple. You want to be on the right side of the market. And what does that mean? It means, you know, you just see, you try to look at the market and say, which way is it going? Don't try to figure out which way is it going to go but which way is it going and be on that right side. So that's obviously been the most profitable long-term strategy as tested by a lot of people. And the second basic tenet is, you know, don't pay too much for it. And there's various ways of doing it. You either don't pay too much fees or, you know, in a more sophisticated way of looking at it, you don't pay too much negative carry. Um, so, so if you can combine a strategy which is positive carry or low cost, and is on the right side of the market uh, over a long period of time. That's going to, you know, do well for you. And 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 again, it's not a well, it's not a, it's not a secret. I think most people know it, but it's just so darn hard, you know, day after day to come in and just do the right thing and do these right things and not get undisciplined and you know start to you know be too cute or act too smart uh, in the marketplace. And I think that's ultimately probably been the best lesson that I've learned over the last 30 years of doing this. Veneer, we didn't even get into your screenwriting or piloting jets. Uh, do you got any good long races coming up? Veneer, um, for the listeners that aren't familiar, is uh, one of his hobbies is um, causing a lot of pain to himself. What would you call that again? But it's uh, ultra, ultra long races. You got any coming up for 2018? Yeah, so we, you know, I've, uh, I've done uh, about six or seven, uh, yeah, it's, uh, 100 milers, including the Western States five times. I finished it and then uh, then the Ultra Trail du Mont Blanc. And I just recently did a very slow uh, Angel's Crest 100 about a couple of months ago um, up north of us in L.A. And it was very slow because I was the first time I was doing a long race solo, meaning with, uh, you know, basically no aid and no help. And, uh, again, I had to plan for it because it's a totally different ball game and you have nobody to, you know, console you at various aid stations. But, yeah, so I am signed up for a couple more hundreds next year. And uh, I'm not as competitive as I used to be, but I'll try to get them finished. I, I, I did one marathon and it was kind of one and done. I think I think I may be done with uh, the long races though. I go much West, more. <laughs> yeah, Wes Gray at Alpha Architects has, he's doing this annual 28 mile hike slash run. I guess you could run it if you want that I may try to do next year. I miss it this year. Very cool, Veneer. Look, uh, if people want to follow your writing, your fund management, everything else you're up to, where's the best place listeners can follow you? Well, uh, www.longtailalpha.com is a place where most of the shorter pieces are. A lot of links to the research pieces are also uh, on our website if the people want to read them. And then, you know, if... uh, if you want, you can shoot me an email. I'm usually pretty responsive about interesting questions and so on. I obviously I am in the markets because I love them, and uh, you know, great interesting questions are always welcome. All right, you asked for it. You're going to get a ton of reader responses, listener responses. I, I warn you. Well, look, it's been a blast. Thanks for coming out, listeners. Thanks for taking the time today. It's been an awesome episode. Send us feedback at themedfavorshow.com. You can always find the show notes. We're going to post all veneers, books, papers, all that good stuff. Mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on iTunes. Leave us a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.